Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCONLP, Chapel Hill, and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North, North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is written, underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISAM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISAM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISAM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio in Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES, Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live-streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu GES, or follow the center on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio and Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics, Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Over the past several decades, organ transplants have become increasingly important to medicine and healthcare. Many challenges remain, however, and fortunately we have researchers working on overcoming them. My guest on Radio in Vivo today is one such scientist who has devoted her career to improving the efficacy and safety of organ transplants. Dr. Xuanrong Luo is an instructor in the Duke University Department of Medicine and the Department of Pathology. 
She is also Director of Translational Research at the Duke Transplant Center and a board-certified nephrologist. She received her Ph.D. from Duke in 1995 and then her M.D. from Duke in 1998. She did her postdoctoral work at Cornell Vial through 2003 and then joined the faculty at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine as a professor of medicine in 2005. She remained at Northwestern until she was recruited to come back to Duke in September 2018. Her research focuses primarily on the induction and mechanisms of a phenomenon known as transplantation tolerance, and we will go into that in depth. Shwin Ranglua, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Thank you, Ernie. Thank you for having me on your show. Shwin before we go into your research in this area, I'd like to spend some time setting the stage by generally discussing where we stand in the world of transplantation. Although there have certainly been some major advances, it doesn't seem to have changed much in the recent past. Where is the field today, very generally? Uh, that's a very good question, Ernie. I think we, as a field, just celebrated uh, just a little bit over 50 years of organ transplantation. The very first set of uh, uh, human kidney transplantation was performed just about 50, 60 years ago in Boston between identical twins. Since then, the field has made significant uh, advances, mostly in the type of medications that we could use to suppress the recipient's immune system so that they won't reject the organ that uh, was transplanted to them. And so that made uh, a significant change to the face of transplantation in that now we can actually transplant organs between donors and recipients who are not blood-related and who are, you know, not closely matched uh, because we have very strong medications to use for them. So that basically had been where we have been for the past uh, 10, 20 years with, with the, uh, um, basically a stay of uh, uh, a mainstay of, of um, productions of these medications. that, And I think that the next stride would really come from newer ways of suppressing the immune system, uh, not to mention the, the, the tolerance that we're going to get into that are a state that we can suppress the immune system but without using the drugs. But step number one, is what we had achieved in the past 50 years, which is already, uh, you know, a life-saving um, uh, set of events for many, many patients who need uh, an organ transplant because of uh, disease affecting their own organs. So there's been a great deal of ongoing research in, in mm-hmm. transplantation ever since, right? Yes, that's that's correct. Uh, well, Chuan Rong, what are the major challenges facing transplantation today? Yeah. So uh, three main challenges, I would say, that number one, because we have drugs, very effective drugs, that we can control uh, the acute immune response that's causing what we call acute rejection. We can make organs go out and last for 
quite a long time. But then we realize as they are going out longer and longer, they experience something that's called chronic rejection. So it's not your, you know, first month or first three months or even first year rejection. It's slow smoldering rejections that goes on for five years and 10 years and eventually burn out the organ, you know, at maybe 15, 20 years. So that is uh, challenge number one. Now we are finally over the hump of acute rejection, but now we are we're we're allowed to see we're permitted now to see the longer term problems that's mm-hmm. chronic rejection number 1 is that graft versus host disease no that's actually very different from what you see in a bone marrow transplant, which is graft versus host disease, but I it's see. the same sort of idea of rejection. The incompatibility between the hematopoietic system versus the organs. So in a bone marrow uh, situation where you have graft versus host disease, it's somebody else's bone marrow attacking your, you know, entire set of organs. Whereas in organ transplantation, it's your own immuno uh, or hematopoietic system attacking that solitary organ that came from somebody else. So same idea, just different direction. So problem number two is this, uh, that I've already said we have very effective drugs, but people have to take their drugs for the rest of their lives. And so sometimes uh, people forget, sometimes uh, insurance, particularly in this country, uh, sometimes insurance uh, eventually fail to cover their medications. Uh, so for very many different reasons, people uh, may not have the means of continuing to take take the drugs. And then when that happens, uh, organs reject, of course. But for, for those people who are faithfully taking the drugs, the drugs themselves have side effects that they can uh, cause diabetes, they can weaken your immune system, uh, weaken the recipient's ability to fight infections and fight cancer. So these people are, you know, more disposed to infections that normal people don't get and cancers that normal people can easily fight off. So that's a problem, long-term immunosuppression. Can we get rid of them and yet still not have them reject their organs? That's quest- uh, pr- uh, main challenge number two. The third challenge, I think, is really just organ shortage. Now that we know that we could do this, um, the wait list of different organs of hearts, lungs, kidneys, liver, pancreas just grows by the day. And uh, every day, I think yesterday there was an article on New York Times about how there are 20 people who are waiting for organs every day die on the wait list waiting for an organ to be to be available to them. But they they were the unfortunate wow. ones who so couldn't really get to that point. 50 years on, 20 people a day are dying. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I yeah. didn't. I didn't realize it was quite that intense. Yeah, yeah. So it's so organ shortage is a big problem because there's just not enough uh, cadaver organs that can be procured to be used for transplantation. So the field is also looking at alternative ways of generating, you know, transplantable organs, and we can go into what 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 those means might uh, could be. Sure. Well, why is this? Chronic shortage still still happening, uh, like you say, fifty years on yeah. since well, the beginnings of transplantation. I think at the beginning of transplantation, like many advances in medicine, that we didn't realize we could do that. So 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 you know, people are not aware that okay, you 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 don't have to be on dialysis, you don't have to die, uh, you know, if you have end stage, say, kidney disease or end stage uh, liver disease. But now people are more and more aware of the, this, the, 
this this possibility of having organ transplantation. So I think the shortage is not necessarily the field is not advancing, but rather our recipient wait waitlist pools are dramatically increasing because mm-hmm. of the awareness mm-hmm. of uh, this possibility. It is uh, getting people to donate their organs uh, still a problem? So that's definitely an area that can be uh enhanced. But remember, most organs are vital to our body. So there are only certain organs that can be donated uh, as a live person. So for instance, kidney, mm-hmm. because everybody has two kidneys. So donating one kidney usually allows you to continue to live a pretty normal life. But other organs are not necessarily so. Heart, for instance, is not something that, that can be donated uh, sure. live. And liver, uh, for a long time, we, you know, we had been using uh, liver from a deceased donor, but now we have a way of, of taking part of the liver of a, a living person and transplant a portion of that liver into a recipient so that the donor can, you know, live a normal life too, but the recipient also gets a new life. So and it will regenerate. Exactly. Wow. Liver is mm-hmm. an organ that will grow into uh, into a functional uh, state that's sufficient to sustain life. So living donor is definitely something, you know, uh, that as a transplant uh, world, we should work on more. Uh, but th- nonetheless, that still doesn't take away the shortage question because of the reasons that I've described. Sure. What, what about the issue of, of matches? Is, is there progress in that area? Yeah. So there, there are a lot of progresses. And I guess it depends on uh, which side of the coin, I guess, you're looking at. So on the one hand, our ability to 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 detect the difference between a donor and a recipient is rapidly advancing. So in the old days, we would just look at something that's called human leukocyte antigens. And there are uh, two classes. There's uh, there are class one and the class twos. And in each class, there, there are uh, five different um, um, genes that we, the, the bone marrow transplanters will look at. The organ transplant, you know, ignore four of them, we only look at six of them. But the bottom line is, that was the granularity, you know, back then. Mm -hmm. And now we can do whole genome sequencing, we can sequence the entire gene, not only we can tell that you and I are different in that particular allele, but we can go into that gene and say, in between that molecule and this molecule that you and I are different, how many really spots of amino acid are actually different. And each of these differences, are they big enough to cause problems? And so we are basically between a zero and one, or black and white, which is what used to be, now we have 50 shades of gray. So so the ability is clearly enhancing just tremendously. But then that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, so... What do you want to do with that information? So you have 50 shades of gray. Are you just going to have that one person wait forever until he or she gets that zero, uh, you know, complete mis- uh, complete match and zero mm-hmm. mismatch? And, and that person, maybe that one in 20 that dies on the wait list and then never getting the organ, right? Yeah. Versus you just deal with the difference of 49 shades of gray and just say, well, you know, I'm going to give you drugs. I'm going to give you these medications that I can control your immune system and I still can give you the organ. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a little bit of a 
uh, give and take. Sure. What's what's the what's the risk and what's the benefit of this type of uh, uh, detail matching? I think an advantage of knowing that kind of information is that you you can prognosticate how that person may do or how that organ may do in that recipient, depending on the match. Not necessarily using it to make a decision to transplant or not to transplant, but use that as a tool for you to kind of predict how well that organ will do. I think that would be useful. Okay. Uh, I I imagine the informed consent forms have gotten a lot more complicated. Yeah. Uh, Well, Xuanrang, I saw a paper that you and your colleagues uh, recently published in Nature, Cellular, and Molecular Immunology Mm -hmm. earlier this year called Emerging Approaches and Technologies in Transplantation, the Potential Game Changers. Mm -hmm. That that caught my eye. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like to go over some of the conclusions that you shared in in that paper. You may have already touched on some of this. But you described three new technologies that address the challenges you've alluded to. Uh, First on the list of game changers was single-cell RNA sequencing technology. Tell us a little bit more about that and how it applies to transplantation. Mm -hmm. So single cell, as the name uh, is alluding to, that we are able to take one cell out and take its genetic information and its transcriptomic information and basically figure out what genes are being expressed in that one particular cell. So, so as you imagine that the information that we get is, 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 is enormous and yet at the same time extremely granulated because we can not only interrogate a whole piece of tissue, but we can go into that piece of tissue and interrogate every single little cell. So, so I, 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 I heard a really good analogy of, of, uh, of the degree of, uh, uh, granularity of this type of technology using something that, uh, that, that happens every day in our kitchen. And that is if you think about how you prepare a smoothie, you would dump in all kinds of fruits and then you put your blender, you blind it, uh, you, you blend it, you, uh, you make a smoothie. So there you have a hodgepodge of taste of strawberries, blackberries and bananas or whatever. And you can't really tell what's in there. Now you can also make something that's called a fruit salad and you can cut your kiwis your strawberries and putting them into nice platter and yet at that situation is still you you have basically a conglomeration of things that you're looking at now imagine that you can just basically go in there and interrogate every single piece that that are in that hodgepodge so you will get so much more granulated uh information because you not only will have a a taste of of everything that's in there, but you know what every individual uh, piece tastes like. So single cell sequencing is is that sort of a, a technology. So uh, for instance, in kidney transplantation, we do biopsies to tell if a person is rejecting or not. But now the way that we do biopsies is that we, we, we take a piece of tissue and then we ask our pathologist to, you know, spend half an hour looking at this piece of uh, tissue pathology to see if there's uh, features of rejection. But, you know, we're humans and we, we can only look at certain things for, you know, for, for, for so much information. So there could be information that are 
uh, uh, missed, and there could also be information that are just subtle enough that evades the human eyes. And so imagine if you could go in there and uh, basically tell uh, the gene ex- expression of every single cell, mm-hmm. that two cells may look completely identical to a human eye, but they're transcriptionally very different. And so one is being injured and the other is not being injured. And you can then tell what's what are the cells that are around the, the cells that's being injured and what do they mean in terms of how they cause rejection. So it becomes a tool that not, that's not only diagnostically potentially quite useful, but even for uh, hypothesis uh, generating for us to understand mechanisms of why rejection occurs, it's also extremely useful. So, but large pools of data, no doubt, and we 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 really need our bioinformatics uh, expertise to help us to even understand how to decompress that kind of high dimensional data to a humanly possible level to understand. That's always the challenge, yes, isn't it? Yes. Um, well, second, you mentioned uh, sophisticated nanotechnology platforms that provide a means of therapeutically delivering immune-modulating reagents to promote transplant tolerance. Tell us more about that advance. Okay. So the as we briefly talked about, rejection uh, is all about how the recipient's immune system recognizes something that's non-self. And so therefore, your instinct is to destroy it and eliminate it and perish it. <laughs> and so, so that, that's, that's, that's the, the human immune system's evolution over eons of time. You see something that's not yourself, you get rid of it. So now we've learned, a, I would say, not everything there is to be learned, but the, the, the more um, useful information of how we reject the uh, organ that's transplanted, what type of cells are involved. Now, we could use that kind of knowledge to engineer the system so that, uh, so that you 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 end up tolerizing the organ instead of rejecting the organ. So it's called immune engineering. So how do you immune engineer? And w- what are your targets? Are your targets uh, your T cells, your B cells, your dendritic cells, your macrophages? Depending on your 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 target, you can use different materials uh, that's synthetic or. Uh, um, not necessarily completely synthetic, but fabricated from biological materials. So things like liposomes, they're made of lipids, and the lipids are uh, not necessarily th- synthetic, but mm-hmm. can be uh, can be assembled into something that we want them uh, to deliver. And okay. so, but you could also use synthet- completely synthetic materials like polymers that completely fabricated through a chemical reaction to de- to deliver similar or differential purposes. So we use these types of platforms to deliver either. Uh, peptides or proteins that can be our uh, target of antigens uh, in transplantation, but it could also be modulatory molecules, so inhibitors or activators of, uh, of, of the immune cells. So we can load everything up into these kinds of, 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 of uh, platforms. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you want them to go, if you want them to go to a macrophage that's a f- professional eater, phagocytes, you, you make them into a certain size or certain shape that are more uh, 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 conducive for being eaten. 
On the other hand, if you want something to signal, you may again into, into a certain size and shape so that they don't get eaten, but they traffic to the site of, say, inflammation or the organ that's being transplanted, and talk to the cells there to control them. So, so this this is the, the the type of technology that because now we have the knowledge, and we have the bio, uh, you know, synthetic ability, and we can put these two. Um, buckets of knowledge together mm -hmm. to make something that's just vastly useful for any purpose, not just for transplant, sure. but maybe for autoimmunity, maybe for cancer immunotherapy. So you, the principles are connected and the ideas are connected, but the utilities can be vastly different. So how, how far along is that technology? Well, so th there are quite a lot that of... That sounds absolutely wonderful, exciting, but uh, yeah. it, we're not really there yet, Yeah, we? no, we're not really there yet. There are there are trials that are uh, utilizing uh, synthetic nanoparticles for controlling things like autoimmune diseases. Uh, I think transplantation is yet, you know, a quantum leap uh, because there the amount of immune reaction that we have to deal with is just... Uh, magnitude more comparing to autoimmunity. So I think that we are we are at the very nascent stage, but people are thinking in that direction. We have the knowledge and we have, you know, fabulous bioengineers who can help us fabricate different things. So I, th I, I want to say that within the next five to 10 years, you begin to see that they become therapeutics. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily for everything, because there's more to learn about each disease uh, categories, but I think that you will see that they emerge on the drug market. Well, I know in, in the immunology field, one of the major advances over the last several years has been the emergence of biologics. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like this could be uh, equal... Uh, in importance or, or more. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that the idea is just that you have total control of something that you fabricate versus, mm -hmm. uh, versus other types of, uh, therapy, you know, for, uh, for instance, cellular therapy that can be quite variable from individual to individual. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the regulatory burden may altogether be different. So I think each therapy, of course, has its own, um, targets. And, uh, I don't necessarily think one can replace the other, but yeah, I think it will be revolutionary. That's exciting. Uh, but that's not all. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, you wrote about the application of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology to the world of transplants. How will that work? Yeah. So uh, that goes back to the organ shortage question. So we are perpetually, the field is perpetually uh, uh, affected if we forever have many more recipients that we can transplant and only so many donors. And so people die, like I said uh, early on. So what can we do as a field? Can we find alternative sources of organ? So uh, so pigs actually had always been thought to be a, a relatively uh, good alternative source of transplantation because uh, physiologically their organ size are quite similar to humans and uh, physiologically their 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 hormones secreted for instance insulin that's secreted by pig islets are uh, are are very similar to humans that can be used to treat human type 1 diabetes and you probably remember uh, from way back when when uh diabetes was 
initially first discovered it was a difficult uh, disease to treat, the, the major treatment was actually porcine insulin because, again, because of the physiologic compatibility between uh, pig insulin and the human insulin receptors, it signals. So, so pigs have always been thought to be a good alternative for use for organ transplantation. But nonetheless, it's a different species. So we, we, when you think about human-to-human transplantation, you have rejections. But when you start to think about pig-to-human transplantation, the amount of immune reaction is yet another magnitude mm-hmm. higher. So what can we do to make that immune response uh less. Mm -hmm. And so here comes in the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, and that's a technology that has been, uh, I think, invented or discovered, I should say, uh, maybe uh, now over a decade ago. Now, the idea is that you can very targetly go into the genome of any organisms and basically edit their genes to the precision that you want to to as 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 precise as one nucleotide difference. So if we know what are the genes uh, in pigs that are causing problems if we use a pig organ to transplant to a human, then we can we can use this technology and go into the pig genome and basically change the gene uh, at these uh, loci to so that they are no longer immunogenic. And so that's the idea of the using the CRISPR-Cas9 for basically engineering xenogenetic organs that are more compatible to be used for human transplantation. That sounds like it in and of itself would solve the, the shortage issue. Exactly. But <laughs> we're still, again, a long way from that actually coming into yeah. clinical practice, aren't we? Yes, yes. I think that you know, there are multiple uh, 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 bio- biotechnology companies that are interested in this technology, mm-hmm. but eventually it would still require biologists like myself to really test to see if these these hypothetical advantage that we think that should dampen the immune response are in fact true or not in in a true transplant scenario to see mm-hmm. if we can uh, uh, if we're right. Well, I know I, several years ago on on the show I had one of your colleagues at NC State okay. uh, on the show who has been working on that for yeah. a long time. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So it's it's something definitely to to keep our eye on and maybe in our lifetime that will become common practice. Yeah, well, CRISPR-Cas9, I think, revolutionarily changed that whole field uh, because now we suddenly have a new tool that we could uh, really play with. Absolutely. Well, to summarize, uh, Xuanrong, I'd like to quote back to you the last sentence of your abstract from that paper that we've been uh, discussing. Uh, Collectively, these new technologies are positioning the transplant community for major breakthroughs that will significantly advance transplant medicine. Uh, is that how you see it? Do you think transplantation will make a, a great leap forward in the coming years? I, I personally do believe that. But like many uh, great leaps and discoveries in, in medicine and in history in general, it nothing would happen overnight and nothing would happen in a quantum kind of a way. And, you know, we learn from what people have learned before. And so we're always standing on the shoulders of the giants to look to see what the next step should be. So I think that there there will be uh, progressive and yet steady, fast advances in the field. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that, you know, 
suddenly in a year we're going to solve all the problems that we face. Sure, sure. Well, as we've discussed over the 50 years, 50, 60 years, it has become safer and more common, and it looks like that trend will, will certainly continue. I completely agree. Well, um, let's talk about your research because you're, you are certainly going to contribute to that trend. Um, and as, as you've described, Xunrong, rejection remains one of the formidable barriers to transplantation. But your research is showing tremendous progress in overcoming that barrier. Uh, your work involves what you call a non-chimeric approach for donor-specific transplantation tolerance. Let's break that down okay. for our listeners who may not be familiar with this field. Tell tell just kind of tear that apart for okay. us. Okay, <laughs> so the non-chimeric part uh, is to distinguishing the way that we induce tolerance from the chimeric way, as you uh, uh, can imagine. So the chimeric way of inducing tolerance has been uh, experimented or described. Uh, probably over two decades ago now, maybe even longer, and d definitely before uh, before I came into the field. But the idea is this, that if we want to transplant an organ from a donor to a recipient and have the recipient not reject that organ, uh, one of the ways is actually just to change the entire hematopoietic system of that recipient and essentially make that recipient into a donor. And then if you can do that, then of course that same person won't reject the organ that's from that same person, even though it's in reality a different person. So the way that you achieve that is that before you give the recipient that organ, you give that recipient the bone marrows from that same donor. So the idea is that you hematopoietically transplant that recipient to make that recipient now both a donor and a recipient. This is where that chimeric idea okay, comes so in. So you're resetting the immune system you're of the recipient. Yes, you're completely resetting, but not only just resetting to zero of that same recipient, you're resetting it to the donor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, 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 so that has been, uh, uh, experimented actually multiple trials in, uh, the, uh, the clinical, uh, transplantation. But as you can imagine, transplanting bone marrow is no small feat sure. because you have to ablate the bone marrow of the recipient. Then you have to engraft the recipient with the donor bone marrow. So all in all, it's a, it's a, it's a very intensive process that frequently requires chemotherapy to ablate the recipient's own bone marrow and oftentimes irradiation, total body or total lymphoid irradiation to get rid of essentially the recipient's own immune system. So some people do well, but some people don't necessarily do well because it's very aggressive conditioning regimen. And uh, so you think about, uh, you know, risk and benefit. Do I want to do that and take a kidney? Otherwise, you know, a kidney, I, I could take just take uh, medicine for the rest of my life. So, again, it's a it's a it's a risk and benefit. But sure. that aside, the other uh, formidable problem of uh, bone marrow chimera based tolerance is what you mentioned earlier, Ernie. It's graft versus host disease. So now suddenly your immune system is a donor immune system. Great. You won't reject the donor kidney or liver. That's great. But guess what? Your entire self becomes foreign to that hematopoietic system oh. that you just transplanted, right? Oh. Mm -hmm. So now you may begin to reject your own self. 
that before you uh, you would not reject. And that's a, a situation that we describe as graft-versus-host disease, and that's very commonly seen in bone marrow transplant for that reason. And it's frequently manifested as skin uh, rashes and sometimes hepatitis, but most commonly it's manifesting as uh uh, colitis or inflammation of the bowels. And so sometimes it can be very difficult to differentiate, is this an inflammation of uh, the bowel like graft-versus-host disease, or is it an infectious etiology? You know, people have parasites or viruses because they take immunosuppression. And sometimes they can be lethal too, because you know, if, you, if they are severe enough to cause bowel perforation, which then leads to abdominal uh, infections and things of that nature, can be can be life-threatening as well. So so that's a problem. So long-winded ways of bringing you back to the non-chimeric approach, the right. approach that we have been doing is basically um, try not to do that but induce tolerance at the same time. So we uh, thought from, you know, like the other side of the coin, how do we as human beings normally to- tolerate to our environment? What if we eat something we've never eaten before? What if we are exposed to a, a pollen that we've never been exposed before? What are the mechanisms that we're not inflammatory selves? Everybody is not walking around sneezing or, or you know, having allergic reaction to any food that they've never eaten before. So how do we peripherally tolerate to all of these different things that we cannot predict that we will be exposed to. So, 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 so the idea is that we must do it pretty well because otherwise we w- wouldn't be walk- walking around. So one of the, the things that we know is that in the body – we have uh, senile cells that we get rid of every day on a daily basis, and we clear billions of cells, uh, sloughing of skin or you know our GI tract or whatever. So the body knows how to clear these types of dying cells without causing a havoc, without causing any inflammation. And so it's a process uh, that we call non-inflammatory clearance of apoptotic cells. So we basically apply that same idea to donor cells. So if we induce donor cells to have certain features like what uh, like what we are exposed to on a daily basis, maybe our immune system then would see that donor cells not as foreign but as self and therefore um, tolerate to it so that the, the, the next time they, they see the same donor, they'll consider it to be entirely self. Mm-hmm. So that's the approach that we take basically by feeding uh, donor cells that are rendered apoptotic to trick the recipient's immune system to say, oh, I should recognize that as self. And so that is um, something that my laboratory has experienced, uh, experimented for the past uh, 15 years now. And uh, we, we initially studied this in mouse models. And we recently, just this past month, published our first paper in using monkey-to-monkey transplant to show that uh, this this type of peripheral non-chimeric tolerance approach can actually also work in large order or uh, large animals that are much, much closer to humans than uh, than our mouse model. So I'm very encouraged by, uh, by, by the publication of this paper and hopefully it'll gain tractions of, uh, attentions, not only attentions of the field, but hopefully also attentions of, uh, people who have, uh, technologies and, uh, uh, means of helping us pushing it into, into the human clinical transplant.
world. And um, do you anticipate that uh, that day coming soon? I anticipate that day coming very soon. I think that uh, our large animal experiments are sort of the step number one sure. for us to be able to convince people that this is doable. I think the next thing that we, we need to do is to, you know, for all clinical trials, we need to prove that it's safe mm-hmm. in humans. And then we need to figure out what are the available drugs uh, that's currently, you know, purchasable, commercially available that can be used together with this type of approach to induce tolerance. And I have, you know, we have some good ideas of how we can achieve that. Um, so I think that day is going to come very soon. Excellent. Is there uh, any practical uh, possibilities uh, on in the outlook for that? Uh, how do you mean? I mean, do you have a specific plans for uh, starting human trials? Yeah. So I think that uh, that uh, like I said, we first need to prove that it's safe. Sure. So so efficacy always comes second and safety comes first. So we first want to make sure that infusing this type of cells in humans won't cause any problems. So for instance, won't make them uh, uh, allergic or have an infusion response. We have pretty good uh, preliminary data that's also uh, done in humans. And there was a published study from 2013 where they used a similar approach, but in treatment of patients with relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis. So it's a type of uh, autoimmune uh, disease that, that sub- certain patients have. So so they, there they basically did a safety study of infusing 1,000 of such cells, you know, 10,000, all the way to 1 billion cells of this kind of a characteristic to show that they're well tolerated by uh by human beings. But autoimmunity, yet, like I said, is altogether a different level of complexity comparing to transplant. So first of all, we need to basically make sure it's it's safe. So we need to produce the cells in the GMP, uh, that's good manufacturing uh, practice facility, mm-hmm. that are safe products that can be infused to humans. And then we need to infuse it to humans to show that there's no adverse events that can uh, be developed. And then, then we can talk about whether they're efficacious. So did the monkey experiments uh, uh, imply at least that uh, safety and tolerance was, was going to be good? Exactly. So okay. there's the, mm-hmm. there's only one next step, and that is to go into humans. Wow, that, that must be very exciting yes, for you. Yes, very exciting. Uh, given that you've been working on this for 15 years, Yes, right? 15 <laughs> years is not a lifetime. I, I've recently <laughs> learned, uh, you know, from one of my mentors, and he, you know, worked up uh, you know, essentially his entire career, and he's finally seeing one of these uh, nanoparticle technologies going into going into uh, human um, therapeutics. So, so fifteen years is not a long time <laughs> in one's career of sure. scientific endeavor. Well, uh, I wanted to ask about this this method. Are there different strategies uh, in this method for different organs and tissues? Uh, or uh, solid organ versus uh, bloodborne. Yeah, so very good question. For sure, there there are differences even in mouse models when we do uh, different types of mouse transplantation, be it 
heart, heart transplant or kidney transplant or eyelid cell transplant, we see very different outcomes uh, uh, if we simply use that method. And so for different organs, because they come with different types of cells, different type of inflammatory uh, signals at the time of transplantation, for each scenario, we just need to be smart, smart enough to figure out what else do we need to do to actually make the efficacy of this therapy show. So I, to me, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's different for sure, but it's, it's the idea of figuring out confounding factors that may make this thing not so efficacious and figure out the confounding factors so that you can combine them together. I see. Very good. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about immunosuppressive drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, have, have those medications improved significantly in recent years? Have they become safer and more effective? Uh, is that part of the mix going forward? Um, so I think I, I think it's probably safe to say that over the past 10 years, there has not been major breakthroughs in terms of drug development for uh, immunosuppression. But uh, comparing to 50 years ago, the drugs that we used to use then, uh, we almost no longer use them anymore because we have newer and more effective drugs. But for, uh, from a drug development standpoint, I would say that there, 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 there are not um, newer categories of drugs and newer uh, drugs that attack different pathways that are that have emerged in in maybe the past ten, fifteen years. Well, uh, Xuanrong, do you think it will be possible at some point to wean transplant recipients uh, off of immunosuppressive drugs? I, I covered that story. 20 years ago uh, when people were first trying to do it. But it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of progress. Yeah, so there is, I would say, there's, there, there's the only progress in that arena is that in order to wean, one has to know if the immune system is, is, is able to be weaned of immunosuppression or it is going to mount a rip-roaring rejection yeah. um, reaction, which is by and large, vast majority of the case. That is, so if one patient, for whatever reason, decides to stop taking the medications, over 90% of them will go on to reject or probably even more. Yeah. So so unguided uh, weaning is definitely doomed to fail. So 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 how do you wean and, uh, and not reject? So that's really the concept of tolerance. One has to be induced to become tolerant in order to be able to be wean of immunosuppression. So, so one could, you know, think of ways of how I can induce tolerance after the organ has already gone in, or maybe even before the transplant happens. So these are the things that people are working on. But for the vast majority of the recipients who are transplanted on immunosuppression without a, 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 a intended process of tolerance, it's unweanable at the moment. I see. So that, that really didn't go anywhere then. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about the concept uh, of growing new organs from one's own mm. stem cells. Uh, I know that's, that's an area you're exploring, aren't you? Uh, it doesn't sound too far-fetched given the advances in tissue engineering. Yes. Uh, well, I, yes and no. I think depending on uh, the organs that people are thinking. So, for instance, uh, when you think about transplanting a 
diabetic patients with islet cells that can secrete insulin or liver cells that can, you know, uh, uh, detox uh, certain things in the body and keep somebody alive. That type of tissue transplant, perhaps all you need is cells. And if you have a cell, if you have cells that have a certain function, you don't really need a structure to do the job. Mm-hmm. And so that type of situation may may be the the the, the first type of you know, growing organs or growing cells that you can imagine uh, from one's own stem cells because you don't really need a, an elaborate three-dimensional structure. But if you think about uh, organs like the kidney, uh, the kidneys have many, very many different compartments. There is the glomeruli and there is the tubules and there, there is the collecting system. And then in the glomeruli, then you then have, you know, five or six different types of cells and they are each in different, you know, locations to allow them to do a precise job together. And so when you have a complex organ like that, now thinking about having your own stem cells differentiating into just say 20 different types of cells. But not only that, they really need to be at the right place at the right time. Now that becomes a quite challenging uh, problems to to think about. Not to say that that's not achievable, but certainly will take longer time than uh, to grow something that doesn't require structure to function. Indeed. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Xuanrong Luo from Duke University. And we are learning all about her fascinating mm-hmm. work in the area of organ transplantation. Well, uh, in the time we have remaining, Xuanrong, uh, I'd like to le- learn a little bit more about you and what brought you to this stage in your life and uh, your scientific and academic career. I know you were born and raised in China. How did you initially come to the United States? Yeah, so uh, f- f- fancy you mentioned this because I was just asked to give a, a career talk for our MD-PhD students over the weekend at their retreat, and I sort of recounted uh, uh, each step of my uh, my career, and I came to realization that it's all these random steps of uh, – of, uh, of, of opportunities that had brought me here. And, uh, I started off, uh, like you said, I was born and raised in China. I went to college in Beijing and, uh, th- third year into my college, I experienced 1989 student demonstration. I was one of the students on Tiananmen Square wow. and it became obvious at that time to me that it's important that for for a pure scientific you know person like myself and I was interested in doing research that I really ought to uh, go to America to go to a graduate school and learn something of how to do science. So I took my GRE and, you know, did TOEFL and did what everybody else did and uh, applied to a whole bunch of schools. And so eventually, how did I choose to come to Duke? It was uh, serendipitous in the sense that I was accepted. You know, of course, you rank all the schools that accepted you in the top schools were Duke and UCLA. And would you choose? And so I didn't really have any other information, just went to, you know, for a numbers person, went to U.S. News and World Report and looked up the ranking of uh, the Department of Biochemistry. Uh, that's what I was applying to at the time and looked at their rank. And Duke ranked number nine and UCLA ranked number 10. And so the choice was rather <laughs> easy. <laughs> and so here here I was in the uh, in, ni- in 1991 in uh, in Durham, and I was recently, just last week, the place where I lived for three years as a graduate student, a place called Central Campus, uh, 
uh, on Duke campus, between East and West campus, they just started demolition of <laughs> of all the buildings that were there. And it, uh, it was I spent a lot of time I spent a lot of time there when I first got here. I brought tears to my eyes. I bet. Well, what was it like for you when you you first arrived at Duke in 1991? So it was a sh- it was a shock. It it was it was difficult to understand the culture, but that's even not the main problem. And it, for me, I came here to learn, and so the way to learn is by going to classrooms and listening to professors and teach classes, and you know took. Uh, different credits and classes, but quickly I found that I could just not understand completely what the professor was saying because of language difficulty or too fast or you know uh, accent what, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it became very clear to me that I really probably could only glean about ten percent of the contents of these classes. So I used to you know live with my Walkman that you take to 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 each class and record each. Uh, lecture. Sure. And then you, I would take them home and listen to them back and forth, back and forth, you rewind and listen to them over and over again until I really got what the professor was saying. So, so the problem with that is, you know, a one hour class can easily turn into something like a four hour listening to the, uh, to the tape recorder. And so that was how I spent, you know, the first half year of my time here. Okay, so you didn't learn English by watching the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I learned, I consider myself to be very, to be very good in English even when I first came here, but okay. even that was just not sufficient to be uh to be to be to be, you know, conversing and to be like fully communicative with sure. uh with my classmates and professors in the academic setting. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh well, how did you come to specialize in transplantation research? Mm. Uh, so I knew I always wanted to do immunology because immunology is one of those areas that so little is known, uh, was known at the time I decided to go into immunology. And I was, I was, I was, I was the top student in the top university in China. I aced every subject except one subject, and that's immunology. And so that really irritated me for, <laughs> for, for I guess a long time that, that I do not understand why I do not understand the subject. And so I decided that it's important for me to basically spend my career trying to understand why I didn't understand it. <laughs> and so, so that was the reason I wanted to do immunology to understand how immunology can affect uh, people's health. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that goal in mind, that's my point B, I uh, contemplate what specialties could that be? Could be hemonc, uh, you know, bone marrow transplant and hematological diseases. But um, but it seems to me that that cancer, you know, oncology, it's not something that 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 is so uh, so so um, Optimistic, I guess, for for, mm-hmm. for 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 me to deal with, and then the other option would be something like allergy, immunology, rheumatology, and I also thought that maybe the impact there was just uh, you know not enough for me. So I thought transplant was just really the field because you have a very focused immunological problem and. The end product of that is you give people hope. You give people a new life that they otherwise wouldn't have. So to me, that was just a, a perfect combination of purpose, significance, and my interest in an, an unovercomable problem that I see at the time. And so that was the main reason why I decided to do transplant. Um, well, that was an excellent explanation. I appreciate that. 
Well, uh, after 20 years away from Duke, uh, as you did your postdoctoral work at uh, Vile Cornell and then joined the faculty at Northwestern, how did it come about that you came to return to Duke? Yeah. Uh, and, and what was that experience like for you? It must have been very different this time around. Yeah, I think different and similar in the sense that this is a place where I was trained and I quote-unquote grew up. Uh, you know, I learned how to live my life in uh, America. And so in a way, there's lots of similarities of, 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 uh, of coming back to Durham. But I think most importantly is, is that, you know, I was in Northwestern for quite a long time, 13 years by the time I left. And it's, I'm not the type of person who likes to hop from one place to another to, to do whatever. Um, but, but it is Duke. And I think that that's the ultimate reason why uh, it just feels the 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 rightest thing to do, and the, if at the right uh, the most appropriate moment, uh, I I feel that it's important for me to come back to basically serve the place that trained me. And I know it sounds a little bit cliche-ish, but it's true for people. It's truly. Uh, True for people that just feel, you know feel this way about the place that you tra- that trained you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, uh, I think I speak on behalf of everyone. Welcome home. Thank you. Uh, you're, it's still a relatively new development, uh, and uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show today uh, and exploring the world of transplantation. So, thank you for being my guest on Radio on Vivo. And best of luck for continued success. Thank you. Thank you, Ernie. Thank you for having me again. And we've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio and Vivo. You can check the website, radioandvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio and Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on Volunteer Power, WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy this show, we ask that you support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.